Hello, and welcome to the first ever edition of 20 Minutes in Top Lab, where I, Tom Evnan, and my fellow NSD Top Lab instructor, Becca Traber, discuss debate-related subjects that are on our minds. Becca and I have a great time picking over debate strategies when we're coaching together and when we're planning lab, so we thought we would give you a glimpse into what those discussions look like. Hi, Becca. Hi, Tom. I'm excited to see what this is like. Me too. On today's show, our main segment will be a discussion of the substance and strategy of topical version of the AF debates, and then we'll close the show with a discussion of some, let's say, strong feelings that Becca has about an area of the disclosure debate. Becca, you think that's fair? Strong I think feelings? I fair. Strong feelings <laughs> is a fair description. <laughs> Very good. Uh, before we get started, a quick note, registration for NSD camps this summer is now open. You can find all the information that you need, as well as a link to the online registration form at nationalsymposiumfordebate.com. Uh, I know Becca and I both look forward to seeing you all this summer. Okay. So let's jump right in. Uh, Becca, just so that we're all on the same page, what are we talking about when we talk about topical version of the AF? Okay, yeah. So topical version of the AF is an argument that happens in a T debate or a topicality debate, typically when the AF is of a critical nature or activist nature and is not trying particularly hard to be topical. It'll often happen that they are conceding the interpretation that they violated and they are saying that they ought not have to follow the interpretation because some feature of the AF is uniquely important or has valuable aspects to it that need to be heard, that we need to actually debate about, which means that it's a very good negative argument to say, no, those things that you're saying are super important about the AF are not essentially non-topical. There is a topical version of that AF that we can run. So the, the good things, the good features of the affirmative aren't necessarily in violation of the interpretation. It's a very common, very strategic argument, typically for the negatives. And it's important for negatives to really understand the argument in order to be able to make effective arguments against these types of AFs. Right. And, uh, yes. Right. That's a good summary. And, um, I think a lot of the time in these debates, uh, you see the, the claim about whether or not there's a topical version of the AF treated as uh, a trivial claim by either debater. And that's kind of a claim that either the affirmative or negative can advance trivially. So in some sense, obviously, there is no topical version of the AF in a T-debate. I mean, if the, if the actual affirmative in the round violates the T-interpretation, then that AF is not topical. Um, and, and this is particularly true in cases where topical versions of the AF come up because often there are no I meets being made. So there's no debate really about this AF, this particular AF not being topical. Right, exactly. Um, and on the negative side, I think often T debaters make the topical version of the AF trivially as well. They'll just uh, sort of assume that whatever the affirmative is uh, in substance could be run topically. And sometimes I think that that claim takes the form of an argument that's just kind of like, well, you could, you could, um, you could do the AF and implement, for example, in an implementation T debate. Yeah, and it's worth just pointing out that the most common type 
of debate when you're having the topicality ver- version of the app would be either T must implement or T must be topical. So the dispute is about whether or not there's a possible app that is meets the topic or there's a possible app that is able to implement. You'll have other versions of topical versions of the app too, but the typical, the sort of key case is the one where it's either implementation or topicality in general. And so if we're not going to treat these debates as kind of trivial questions of whether this app is topical or whether any app could be topical and still still sort of in substance be the same affirmative, um, I think what we're really asking is, uh, are there other formulations of the affirmative that both meet the topicality interpretation and capture, I guess we could say generically, the desirable elements of what the affirmative is trying to do. And so the substance of those debates is really about identifying what are the different elements of the AF, what motivates uh, the affirmative formulating the position according to those elements, um, and can those be captured or to what degree could they be captured uh, by an affirmative that meets the interpretation being presented. Yeah, and one of the really important things about what you just said, Tom, was the idea of what the AF is trying to do. Because a lot of what happens in these debates is trying to nail down exactly what features of the AF are so desirable as to make it essential that we be able to run this AF. So we are trying to figure out what the aspects of the affirmative are that mean that we have to be able to run something like this. Because the way these debates end up functioning is the affirmative debater will often leverage the existence of their AF against the T-flow. So the T-debater will have a bunch of reasons why limits are important or predictability is important. And the AF-debater often won't really contest those. Instead, they'll say, yes, even though those things are important, it's more important for me to be, have the ability to read my AF in particular. So a lot of the topical version of the AF discussion is trying to find ways to say those things, that set of things that are so important about the AF can best can also be fulfilled in a topical version. So it's really important to figure out proxies or ways of thinking about what the AF is trying to do or what goods the, for, the alternative formulations are trying to capture in order to present themselves as, in fact, versions of the AF and not entirely different things. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, and it strikes me one of the most immediate proxies for what the elements of the F are that the negative should be trying to capture in their TVA argument is uh, just for the negative debater to look at the offense that the affirmative is garnering on the T debate. So, yeah, they're going to be ma- the F is going to be making explicit arguments to say the F is important for you know, if it's the most generic version, philosophical education for some sort of high theory F. But if it's a more specific version, it could be something like it's important for debaters of color to be able to read positions that actualize their perspectives. That could be an argument that they read on the T debate, in fact. So that would be a very clear way of determining what goods the F is trying to succeed, fulfill. And obviously, in practical terms, in the one end, that uh, those arguments are anticipatory since you don't yet know what claims the 1AR is going to make on the T-debate, which often means what you're looking at is the offense identified in the affirmative. Right. Um, That's Uh, one of the best ways to anticipate what the 1AR is going to be. (laughs) It's a tried tried and true anticipation method. Not always, not always perfect, but it helps. (laughs) 
Um, and I think, uh, I think if you, if you really want, um, if you want like a, a, a substantive and good idea of what that offense is doing in the one AC, then at a deeper level, what you really need to do is have some knowledge about the literature base of the affirmative. Um, because it strikes me that the real question is, um, okay, so we have an affirmative, it's grounded in a literature base. Within that literature base, there are different scholars taking different positions, and they agree with each other in some ways and disagree with each with each other in other ways. Um, and I think that's particularly fertile ground for the negative debater um, if they're able to say, um, you know, yes, your particular version of this position is such that it can't be topical or isn't topical, or at least it might be the case that it couldn't be topical. Um, but there are a lot of other positions in, in the literature that you're drawing from um, that are therefore in many ways similar to the position that you're taking, speak from a place of the same set of concerns, take seriously perhaps a large subset of the affirmative's arguments, um, and yet they uh, might advocate something or could be used to advocate something that would satisfy or meet the, the topicality interpretation. Yeah, and this is kind of a tricky one because it relies on the ability to make these general claims about the sort of literature that the AF debater is referring to, which means often that you'll have to be familiar with their literature, which is a hard burden because often the reason why you're reading a T-shell in these debates is because you don't feel familiar with their literature because you aren't comfortable reading their books, their arguments. But um, this is not an impossible ver- burden. Ideally, what you would find is some sort of evidence or some author in particular who makes the claim that the general sort of thing the affirmative is trying to do is achievable with whatever T-shell you're doing. So that would typically be something that says you can do this type of attitude, this type of approach with the state, for instance, or by using a policy action. The sort of, you know, holy grail card would be something that says like, Deleuzian analysis is perfectly consistent with policy analysis. And that would then be able to allow you to use that to say, there is a topical version of your Deleuze F. It is possible to use that Deleuzian literature to make policy analysis type claims. Along the same lines, I think uh, a, one strategy that uh, the negative might use along with a TVA argument and specifically along with an argument that is grounded in the literature base of the affirmative is to argue that the judge should use, I mean, I don't know if you would put it this way in a debate, but essentially you're saying the judge should use a reasonability lens for evaluating your topical version of the AF proposals. Uh, And what I'm thinking there is, I think there's some reasonable argument to be made that we perhaps want to have an attitude of kind of like, recognizing pluralism and scholarship when we're, we're evaluating whether or not there's a topical version of the AF. Um, because I mean, I, I think in reality, uh, any scholarly field is going to have lots of different proposals from lots of different perspectives. Uh, sometimes those differences in perspective, uh, you know, are going to be pretty small. Um, I mean, Becca, you and I have both spent time in, in graduate school. You're in graduate school now. Uh, 
And part of what that means is we spent a lot of time um, uh, engaged in debates about extremely small differences between positions. Yeah, the, um, the most fierce debates can happen over really, really small differences, which is actually some phenomenon you see in actual debate. Too. Right. Yeah, exactly. And uh, anyway, I think one thing that might mean is uh, y- you could think, well, inevitably in debates, we're going to be picking from a subset of that literature. Um, and that doesn't really mean that that subset is valuable, but we just know for a fact that all the rest of it is not valuable. Um, and so one thing you might think is you should conclude that there's a reasonable and satisfactory topical version of the F if it lets you pull from a lot of that literature, even if it's the case that the affirmative has some arguments that uh, you know their position is the best within that literature. Yeah. So what you're describing is a gloss on the more defensive formulations of the topical version of the AF that says, I'm not making an argument that the topical version of the AF is the only good version of the AF or the best version of the AF, but it is a version of the AF. And we should have this pluralism. We should have this ability to have multiple types of AF arguments. And that's reliant really on having offense elsewhere in the T-debate, which you probably will have. You'll probably have some limits or predictability type argument that you can say, this is the reason why we should be topical and there is a reasonable version of the AF that is topical. But at the same time, there might be a benefit to having offense on this flow. So reasons for why that the topical version of the AF isn't just a version of the AF, but is in fact the better version of the AF. And one really important reason why you might want this offense is because it protects you from the impact turn on the normal T side of the debate. Because often the strategy is that not only is it doesn't matter that fairness of the AF isn't fair, but fairness and the appeal to fairness is actively bad, for instance, would be a common type of claim. So having reasons for why the AF um, should be topical, would be better if it were topical, uh, is a really important thing on this debate. A possible example of that, for instance, would be to say that we need to have policy discussion when we're doing reparations specifically, for instance, because without the specifics of which people we are giving reparations to for which crimes, it's not generally reparative, would be an example. And I, I think in that uh, in that neighborhood, it's important to keep in mind that the, the better version of the AF claim might not technically be... Uh, exactly a version of the AF. So in the, in the example you just gave, you could imagine an AF that was advocating reparations. Um, and you say, it's good to have policy implementation for reparations. But on the other hand, it seems likely that if an AF is advocating for reparations, they probably are advocating for implementing them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it strikes me that in other cases, it might just be that you you need to make the claim the things that your AF is is speaking to should be spoken to in the context of reparations and reparations is a policy issue. Right. Yeah. So you could say that like your concerns are best achieved through policy issues. So an example of this is like, suppose the AF is concerned with like indigeneity and indigenous rights. And you could make the argument that a lot of the problems with indigenous sovereignty, particularly in the United States are specifically legal problems and specifically problems about legal access. And so without the particular ability to um, 
have legal advocacies, we are going to be stuck without the ability to make real change. And in that case, it's easy to imagine an AF uh, speaking to indigenous people that is just resolutely anti-state and anti-implementation. And so in that case, you have a real debate about whether it is a better use of our educational forum in this round to talk about uh, issues of indigeneity from the perspective of simply being anti-state, or should we talk about them from the perspective of specific legal analysis and proposals? And having this type of offense checks back against the real danger that I've seen in these debates, which is that the neg misidentifies what the actual literature and benefit of the AF is. So suppose the AF is something that's like largely Afro-pessimist or has a very pessimistic view of race relations in the United States. And the topical version of the AF is a much more integrationist and inter incrementalist advocacy for Black policy or Black policymakers. That is also about Black people, but it very much misidentifies <laughs> um, the actual concerns of the AF. So holding right. yourself rigorously to like being integrated in their literature, knowing their literature is really important for these debates. Yeah. And I mean, I, that, that speaks to, I think, one of the things that uh, is most frustrating about these debates is that um, it, it's not only kind of strategically silly uh, that the negative is just sort of making gen very, very generic claims uh, about why there's a topical version of that. But it's also just that I think topical version of the AF debates could be really interesting debates if they were engaged in, in some specificity, because they're really kind of meta debates about the different positions that are taken within a body of literature. And it, it, it strikes me that the, the research that could back up those arguments, as well as the debates that could happen in, in the round, could be very interesting debates. Um, but as you say, often there, there are debates where um, the negative picks out an extremely generic element of the affirmative and just says, I do that too. And those moments are always kind of cringeworthy. And it's also a really good opportunity for the app. It's super easy if like the AF is a specific Delusian AF and the TVA is, you could also talk about subjectivity in the state. Like there are subjects right. in the state. And that being able to differentiate your AF from that topical version is effortless. So it's worth keeping in mind exactly. when you're affirming the strategic utility yeah. of systems. And we should we should talk a little bit about uh, this debate from the perspective of the affirmative. Um, but before we do that, I wanted to ask you a question about something you said earlier. Mm -hmm. um, you you were talking about uh, the I guess kind of the difference between offense and defense on topical version of the AF debates for the negative. Um, and I'm curious what you think, well, I guess what you think the right mix mix of the two is. Well, this is a question that's really judge dependent. Because if you have, you know, three very topicality uh, inclined judges in the back of the room, having defense is probably the most important thing. Because what you want to do is you want to give them enough reason to ignore the active reasons coming from the AF that say... I should have the ability to read the app and give them reason to look to the topicality offense about predictability and limits that they want to vote for. But right. on the other hand, if you have three K judges in the back of the room, they don't want to vote for the topicality 
offense at all, that they are absolutely not wanting to vote for that. And they want to vote for the K. So it's super important to have K offense where you can say, if you care about the K judge, like if you want to vote for the K, you need to vote for topicality because the better version of the AFK is a topical version of the AFK. So offense is really important in that situation. Yeah. Uh, so there, I mean, the reason we we've paid uh, relatively little attention to this debate from the side of the affirmative is that I think one of the obvious things about what you need to do on the AF in this debate is just to exploit your comparative advantage of uh, your knowledge in the literature, um, and in particular, what you're doing there is you're exploding the importance of differences between the literature and advocacy you could employ under a topical version of the AF and the literature and advocacy that you're employing in your actual affirmative. And the assumption is if, you, if you're good at running your AF, then you have the knowledge base in the literature to really emphasize, well, first to identify and then to emphasize the importance of those differences. And as the AF, you're probably ahead here, because one of the reasons why the T debater is reading T is likely because they're not as comfortable in your AF as you are. I hope you're more comfortable in your AF than most negative debaters, which means that you should have the ability to make sophisticated and nuanced arguments why this particular take on the topics of your AF is really important. And in this way, you can almost even take advantage, like suppose they have a card that says it's really possible to talk about subjectivity and policy analysis or something, or it talks about how we can do like high theory and subject analysis. Um, but uh, there is... If, if you're able to say my view of the issue, my minoritarian view is uniquely important, then you're able to give offensive reasons for why, even though this isn't the most common view in the literature, it should be a view that is more common and more people should talk about it. I like that a lot because, I mean, strategically speaking, it functions as kind of an impact turn on, uh, on the Neg's arguments that uh, there are lots of other important positions in the literature that would be topical. Right. Yeah. And offense is always good on this type of debate, particularly when you're in AF, because most of what you're going to be saying is that there are proactive reasons why you shouldn't be topical. You're not going to probably spend much time in most of these debates doing defense on how predictable or limit C you are. <laughs> offense is always good. Words to live by. <laughs> Hot take. I guess right. I guess the other consideration here is um, that I guess, or I guess, this is really a specification of what it what you're doing when you're emphasizing the importance of the elements of the AF that make it not topical. It strikes me that one of the things you're doing is articulating why the features of the AF that make it not topical are also central to the other features of the affirmative, and so you're yeah. So it's not just like you've chosen this non-topical appendage that you've added to a bunch of other stuff in the AF, but it's more that you can tell a story uh, that, that demonstrates that all these different things that you're doing in the AF and all the types of arguments you're trying to consider uh, or the situations you're trying to consider, or the strategies and the reasons to prefer those strategies you're trying to employ, all of that stuff sort of couldn't be posed by you coherently along with a topical advocacy. 
And hopefully you're ahead on this because hopefully you're not topical for a reason. Like there's a reason why the AFT that you're reading is not a policy analysis or is not implemented or doesn't support the resolution. Right. So you're probably able to articulate how the whole of your offense, the whole story of your AF is dependent on this not being topical. And it sort of speaks to how important like your familiarity with the literature is and your confidence with the literature in that it allows you to fully state, here's the narrative I'm telling, here's my account, here's the story I'm telling, and here's why it couldn't possibly be a topical story. Okay, so I think that's a good place to end our topical version of the AF discussion, unless there's anything you would like to add. No, but I'm looking forward to hearing what other people think. So let us know if you have any thoughts on the topical version of the app, either on the Facebook page or in the comments to the post where this is. Yeah, absolutely. Please do. Uh, and now, Becca, you have some thoughts <laughs> that you'd like to share about disclosure, uh, or rather the the small school's argument in disclosure debates. Right. Uh, so what's, what's the s small school's argument, and uh, how do you feel about it? <laughs> so... As a, just as an initial note, I don't think anything I'm about to say is determinative on whether or not there should be disclosure. So I don't think this answers the question of disclosure good or disclosure bad. But there's a very it's a sort of a minutia in the debate. It's a minutia in the debate, and it could have implication, impl uh, implications for the larger debate, but it's not determinative. But okay, so there is a common argument that says disclosure is really important for small schools or lone wolf debaters, which typically has the form of. Um, Without disclosure, these debaters won't know what other people are reading because they don't have the scouting resources that large schools do. And they're not, perhaps not as connected as large schools. And I have two main thoughts on that. I'll start with the easier one first, which is that I think empirically the case is largely not true. Prior to disclosure, small schools and lone wolf debaters, supposing that they had a certain amount of connection to their local circuit, we're able to get some sense of what other people were running. It was sketchier than what it is now. It was less specific, but most people weren't going into rounds blind. It's just an empirical fact of the matter prior to disclosure. But the more important argument that I think is just clearly true is that for the vast majority of lone wolf and small schools debaters, even though they get some advantage for disclosure, they get significantly less advantage for disclosure than people with significant coaching staff. And the reason for this is simple. And you're, just to, to clarify there, so you're defining lone wolf small school debaters as debaters who don't have a lot of coaching. Yes, who either don't have a coach or have like a part-time coach who's not at the tournament or in general just have less coaches and fewer coaching yeah. resources. That makes, that makes sense. I, I just ask because I've, I've, uh, I've for example, I've coached <laughs> right. single debaters with, who, who didn't have teams but had, you know, had hired three coaches. Right, yeah. So that person... You're, you're not you're not considering that that's not the type of student you're talking about. I'm not super worried about the accessibility of someone who can hire three coaches all by yeah, themselves. They're doing okay. <laughs> they're doing fine. <laughs> um, but the person who can't hire coaches, who doesn't have a coach, is just going to be behind on the prep outs and the type of research that is able to be done. And I mean, I know this firsthand in that I'm part of a large school with a lot of coaches. And I know that when we have specific disclosures, we're able to talk through the arguments one by one with our debaters and like do specific research and do a lot of work beforehand. And you're just gonna, it's just gonna be better. The prep out's gonna be better when it's done by, you know, two 30 year olds with graduate degrees than it is by a 16 year old. And I think that anyone I who so. doesn't think that is 
fooling themselves. Yeah, I think I largely agree with this. Although uh, I do, I do think there are exception cases, at least to, to what you're saying. Um, I think maybe, uh, maybe, maybe the takeaway that I would have from this point is that uh, sort of if you if you looked at the if you looked at the average large school or average well coached debater and compared them to the the, the average lone wolf uh, without a coaching staff, uh, in a world of disclosure, perhaps the lone wolf is is disadvantaged in the ways you describe. Um, I think maybe an exception to that is um, those single debaters who are kind of on their own but are exceptionally talented uh, and I think this is a separate thing, exceptionally uh, good at motivating themselves, maybe get a lot out of disclosure. Um, and depending on the kind of, just because they, they're, they're sort of motivated to spend a lot of time combing through the wiki and certainly getting a lot, a lot more detail on positions than they otherwise would, especially if they're not going to a lot of tournaments. Um, and perhaps also, depending on the kind of positions that they run, if they're kind of dramatically different from the sort of thing that people usually run, maybe the advantage of prepping them out is not as large. Yeah. What, what do you think about a case like that? Well, I think that's definitely true. I think like a super tricky or super critical lone wolf debater who does a lot of work and does a lot of prep will benefit from disclosure. That's certainly true. But it becomes a question of like, how do you measure interventions or types of actions aimed at reducing inequality? Because one of the things, mm -hmm. and this is true of like policies in the world too, often you'll have attempts to reduce inequality that will help everyone, but because of pre-existing resource disparities will help people who have more resources, whether those be personal and intellectual or financial, more than it will help people who have fewer resources. And it might be something we're comfortable with. I just think, I think the it's good for small schools argument should just die. I think it's just wrong. Um, and I think that <laughs> you think, do, you, you, it seems like you think essentially the the small schools argument is uh, is is kind of a a helpful a helpful PR tool <laughs> for uh, big schools who benefit dramatically more from disclosure. That's a safe way to put it. I think that's true. Is that, is that about right? Yeah, that's about right. <laughs> And like, I'm not denying that there's no benefit to small schools and lone wolf debaters. And I'm not even denying that there's some people who have the false consciousness as a small school or lone wolf debater that it is good for them. I'm just saying, as someone who has an inside, has essentially an inside view on being a lone wolf or a small school debater without, without much coaching and someone, although I had some, and someone who has been a coach at a large school, the difference is stark. Disclosure seems to be clearly beneficial to the people who right. have lots of coaches. And we're, we're kind of in an interesting uh, uh, position ourselves, I guess, on this issue, because both of us were small school debaters. Um, and now we're large school coaches. <laughs> right. Yeah. And as a caveat to my being a small school debater, I was from a big school without any LD. So it's kind of half and half. But uh, I right. the experience is closer to small school. But yeah, so we I feel like yes, you let, should trust let us. us. Not, let us not disparage the, the name of the... Um, of the Kincaid School. That's true. <laughs> who, in fact, has, has uh, I think, one of both of our favorite coaches. Yes, in fact. An excellent <laughs> coach. But you certainly were from a small school and are now a big school coach. So you, ha you should 
This is right. You have the most credible viewpoint. Small school Nebraskan. <laughs> okay, well, should we wrap it up there? Yeah, I would love to. I'd love to hear people's thoughts on disclosure theory, which is a you know a very politely and evenly discussed issue, typically. <laughs> yeah, that sounds exactly right. Uh, <laughs> okay. So that's all for today's episode of 20 Minutes in Top Lab with Tom and Becca. We hope you enjoyed listening to it. We certainly enjoyed having the discussion. And please feel free to send us your comments and feedback. I will close with a friendly reminder. You can now register for NSD camps for the coming summer. And you'll find all the information you need to do that, as well as the link to our online application at nationalsymposiumfordebate.com. We look forward to seeing you this summer. Apparently, 20 minutes in Top Lab actually takes 30 minutes, which is something that shouldn't surprise <laughs> any of our first year outs. Yeah, we went a little over there. I guess uh, I guess for the next session, we'll need to either uh, get control of ourselves <laughs> or change the name of the podcast. Okay. Thanks, Tom. <laughs> Thank you, Becca. Thank you.